0: i started to research looking at the grain looked at the work i did in edinburgh and i came up with a concept which is called barley abrasion you will have seen it on my thing so what is it when i worked in edinburgh with a phd i realized that the concept which was worldwide on how the grain worked. The research I did said it wasn't right. And put it simply, the general concept of how the grain worked to change itself from barley to malt, which is a multi-million pound industry, is that the germ digested the grain. So it changed it into sugar. And the sugar is used to make beer and whiskey. That's how fermentation of the grain is fundamentally it's that. So the grain has no sugar initially. You grow it, germinate it, it digested itself, and you get the sugar and the other nutrients required for the yeast to change it into whiskey or beer. That's the process. And when I did my research here, despite all what was going on outside, I realized that I don't think that was right. The germ didn't do it. <laughs> In fact, the tissue that surrounds the, the, the starch, which was digested, it's the tissue around that that completely encloses the grain, mm-hmm. most of it. And we eat it today. It's called the bran. Brand Flakes, not brand The brand, <laughs> brand Flakes now take on a new value. <laughs> when you eat your Brand Flakes, think of it. Wow. Because that saved me. <laughs> that changed the technology of this industry and how it worked. Because my my um, the information I had told me that it was the brand that digested the grain, not the germ. But I was struggling because, you see, you could take the germ off and it produced enzymes that, that you would digest. So the view was from the big, big companies around the world, you know, Heineken or Carlsberg. Um, Carlsberg published a lot on it, saying it's not, what he's saying is not right because you can take the germ off by itself. And it produces enzymes. So how can he be saying the enzyme doesn't do it? The the, the embryo doesn't do anything. Because when you take the embryo off, you can get enzymes. What they didn't realize, and it's like in life, you know, you've got to look carefully. When you take the germ off of a grain, it is contaminated with bran. Nobody's looked. Nobody's ever looked. When you take a germ off, it's contaminated with bran. Thus, it will behave like bran. And I can tell you, the criticism I had was just like the history. (laughs) Criticism, (laughs) which I will come to because it's exactly the same. And today I'll link the two because I've not done that in literature or anything before. So I was criticized worldwide, and it was dangerous for me at work because my boss, and my wife will tell you, by then, you know, we were married, and she will tell you, she said, I came home for seven days once and spoke to nobody because my boss told me, because I had this concept and I said, the brand did it, and what we can do to improve the whole thing is to stimulate the brand as much as we can. Don't stimulate the germ, because the germ is minor. And he said, "But the whole world saying is this, and the whole world said. And he said, "Well, you better be right because I'm going to get rid of you if you're wrong." That, so I was working in a situation in my first job. And that was a threat. If I were wrong, then I'm in trouble. And the senior boss, the, the director, came down to visit me one day. And he, he, Dr. Cook was the man who worked on penicillin. So he was no minnow. <laughs> and Dr. Cook came down to my lab and he said, um, How is the work going, Palmer? He always called you by your surname. I'll never call you by your first name he even called his sister Miss Cook (laughs) she lived on the same site as he did and he called her Miss Cook No, you've got a history there because he is very famous Dr H Cook you know he was the one of the men who worked on penicillin to work out its structure so he was my my ultimate boss at the institute and he just asked me because he was talking to my boss and Dr Cook said you know, how is it going? And I said, fine, Dr. Cook, I think, I don't think the germ does it. Um, And he said, oh, um, so what do you intend to do? And I said, "Uh, I'm going to try and stimulate the bran because that should make the grain go faster. And he just said, okay, and he walked out. And I then, as my mother would say, as God would have it, I found a mill in the attic of the institute, and it's a little mill that when you put grain in it, you can pearl it. If you keep turning it, it completely takes all the skin off the grain, completely. So you're just left with the pearl. You can buy pearl barley. Right. right. Instead of doing it for half an hour or whatever to pearl it, I did it ten times. Only ten. And I took the grain out. They looked exactly the same. But when I looked at it very carefully... It started to damage the grain at the back end, not the germ end. It's where the bran is, goes round. It starts to scrape the grain at the back. And then I checked because there's a hormone that is produced in the grain that triggers enzymes. We knew that. And you could buy that hormone. So I bought some of that hormone, put it on the grain. And it started to digest itself from both ends. Both ends. Because when it's doing it from one end, the germ produces the hormone. It doesn't produce the enzymes. And that hormone stimulates the bran to produce the enzymes. So if I get the hormone, I could stimulate the bran without the germ doing a thing. Because that's all the germ does. And of course, as the germ is producing some hormone, and I can put it at the back as well, then the grain is going to digest as if it's got two germs, front and back. And when I noticed that, I said to my boss, "Um, I think I've got the answer. And he said, okay. And then what he did, he said, have you analysed it? And I said, no, I haven't. I haven't really processed it yet, but I think it should be better than the present situation, by far. And then he stopped the laboratory analysing anything I produce. Mm. So I couldn't check it. He stopped the analysis. But I processed it anyway. So I had the grain ready for analysis in about a month or so without any analysis. And then he came to me one day and I said, I've processed the grain, uh, ready for analysis. And he said, have you still got that view? I said, yes, I have. He said, okay, we'll analyze it. And if it isn't as you say, then you're in some trouble. So he analyzed it. And it was exactly what I said. It was better. It was, you could process the abraded grain in two days earlier than the normal. So the normal took ten days, it took eight. So that's two days. Every eight days saved on a process. That's an enormous amount of money. But it also helped the industry because they were struggling. (coughs) The people who produce their own grain, like the brewers. Big companies like Watney Truman's, Bass Jarrington's, Allied Breweries who owned Brewery Nalawa, those companies made their own malt, although they bought. So if they could make their own, they would buy less. Mm. If they could make their own quicker. And that's what the abrasion process did. Mm. It allowed big companies to make their own malt quicker. That didn't make me very popular with the producers of malt it didn't make me popular with them when i suggested sorghum could be used in nigeria because they were selling malt to nigeria and of course the sorghum covered that so i was very i've always been unpopular with the work i do in in a sense that when you are being innovative it's risky And I find that even with history today, somebody was telling me not long ago that you're the one who's challenging the historical truths about we can't because we'll have something to lose. Because if we say it, then our boss may not like it and we might lose our jobs. So therefore, we're in a world where somebody can see something that's wrong, but it's not in their interest to challenge it. And they don't. And and therefore, that's something I will not accept. And my family knows that. So it, 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 this was how I did my research. These were the risks I took. And when I, the abrasion process was used by industry and showed that it worked, my boss who was threatening me, I can show you there that The second publication I published on this, he put his name on it. (laughs) He put his name on it. And therefore, that's the nature. I didn't mind, I didn't care. The point is he'd lost the argument. And as long as I worked at that institute, I knew I was protected. Because what I'd done turned out to be correct. The irony is, Although industry used it, etc., somebody in, I think it's Australia, published a paper in 2017. This is 1968 to the 70s. Somebody was still producing a paper. And I think what it is, I don't think people can accept that a black person had done that. Because the concept of black people being inferior is still in the heads of black and white people. And that came from David Hume, the man sitting on the high street with his big statue. Edinburgh University took his name off a building, the Hume Tower. And what we have today is that is still important. So if I go from the scientific difficulties because it is similar to the the ones on history, because it's me challenging established views. Mm. And somehow they'd rather have the inefficiency and the lack of knowledge than accept the truth from me or anybody else, Mm. which they don't accept. And therefore, when I started to look at the history, is that I had all these experiences of living in London at Leicester University where we didn't do very much because race wasn't that big an issue, despite we had Enoch Powell and people actually saying they want us out the country. It's because it didn't affect me in terms of my culture. Uh, I didn't think it was a big deal. And they weren't attacking me personally, so it didn't bother me. But when I came to Edinburgh, I became more aware of that. So when I came back to Edinburgh in the second time in 77, and I was going to live here now, things had changed a bit because uh, students, the, the, the Scottish population knew that when you come as a student, you're leaving. <laughs> you're not here permanently. So the attitude was different. So they saw you just as a temporary resident, right? Believe it or not, is that that changed. When I came back in the 70s, you could see that. It's different from the 60s because there were people now who they knew were staying, were not leaving, not leaving. So the attitudes towards people from the colonies had changed. It was more aggressive. was more negative and uh, that surprised me in fact on this road the wee little girl used to come over here when I came in 77 and she used to say to my wife can Jeff come out and play (laughs) and I used to go out and play with the children on the road (laughs) but one day she came over with the other children and she said to me do you know what my dad said about you, sir? And I said, no, what did he say? She said, my dad said, do you know, Jeff over there, he's going to put the price of my house down. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> the point is that she was saying, which was the common probably view, along the road at the time. that And it was a view in, in England that when you had a black person who bought a house next to you, you'd put the value of yours down. That's right. And the little girl was telling me that. That's what her dad said. The irony, when he left not long ago, because they were still living here, he was involved in the Joseph Knight case, where that was a case in Scotland where the outcome in 1778 is taken by historians at the highest level and by people in our society at the highest level, that Scotland abolished slavery with that case. And therefore, I was aware of all that and So I thought the story of James Weatherburn going to Jamaica, buying Inverse Lodge um, and his brother in that powerful case where the black servant, Joseph Knight, was released, was taken that Scotland abolished slavery. I thought that wasn't true. And it had to be said that it wasn't true. So I set up a walk from Musselburgh to Inverse Lodge. In 2007, 200 years of the commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade, 2007, that walk, and a lot of people came, but part of that walk was critical because James Witherburn, when he was in Jamaica, had slaves. And he had a a mixed-race slave, a mixed-race son, of course, who was a slave, called Robert Weatherburn. And he's now a national hero of black people, especially Caribbean people, who know about him. Because he's the son of James Weatherburn, who bought the house, white Scots, who bought the house. And Robert Weatherburn found out his father lived in Inverse Lodge from Jamaica. Somebody, or James Weatherman must have told him, but the mixed-race children had the the opportunity of leaving Jamaica. So James Weatherman's son turned up at Inverse Lodge, Robert Weatherman. And Robert Weatherman is an activist, one of the earliest black activists in Britain. And he challenged the system. He questioned the church. He questioned the fact why black people were slaves in Jamaica. He came to visit his father in Villas Lodge, and he told him to go away. He went away. But my walk, I invited a descendant of Robert Weatherburn, Lord Bill Weatherburn. And Lord Bill Weatherburn was an academic, and he admitted that he's descended from Robert Weatherburn the mixed race slave and he came up to Edinburgh and accompanied me on that walk Lord Bill Weatherman the descendant of the mixed race slave wow. and he he died recently um, but he came and we went to Inverlogs and we celebrated that event so that's how I started that when you're doing this activism you've got to do things like that yeah. Because then everybody was paying attention. This was something they didn't know. And we did a walk to establish it. Politicians became interested. I then um, challenged the Joseph Knight case. And I said, this case has, if Joseph Knight wasn't a slave, why did you abolish slavery? How could you? And that got historians on my back because that's been around for 200 and since 1778. Since 1778, taught in law. law, If you did a law degree in Scotland, you would be taught that. And I said, Joseph Knight wasn't a slave. He was a servant who was brought back from Jamaica. But there was no slavery in Scotland, so how could he be a slave? And a professor said he was an enslaved servant. That's an oxymoron. It's nonsense. And thus the attack on me started. Just just like with the barley. Oh, he's not a historian. He's not a professional historian. He's a brewer. He's this. And that was the negativity. But it didn't bother me. And I still persisted. And the point is that Then I turned to the Henry Dundas' statue and I read that plaque and I said, that plaque is not true. And that started again the criticism. I got the council interested with another guy called Ramsey and we set up a committee to look at the plaque. We got nowhere because the historians said, they're not historians. And the things they've said, you know, you can read it, it's all in the press anyway. Um, However, George Floyd died sadly, and I spoke at one of the rallies, and I said, one of the things we should do is change that plaque. The council eventually listened, and that narrative I read you there, the plaque has been changed. It says exactly what he did. He gradually abolished the slave trade in order to benefit slave owners, because if they couldn't have slaves... They couldn't run their plantations, Thus he had to keep the trade going. And I've actually dug up his work. My son in London has sent me some of those books. And I have actually worked out where he said himself that you cannot abolish the slave trade. I've got one of his letters where he says he's going to oppose the abolition of the slave trade. And what he was going to do was going to try and ensure that the slaves can breed themselves more easily. It was going to get girls of 16 and boys of 21, no older. If they were older, they would cause rebellion. So if you can't have a trade, you've got to encourage breeding. Now, other people didn't like me saying all that, but it's true, I've got it in writing. And that changed the attitude, and we got the plaque. And since that plaque has been up, we've had the criticism from the family and from other historians. So exactly what happened with the Bali work is what happened with the history work. The point is that people don't want the truth. And what I will end with is that they don't want the truth from certain sources. This is how I see it. And it's almost like, what right have you got to be telling us that? It's a bit of that. And I think the truth has no colour. The truth has no race. A four is a four. (laughs) However, we've got to the race situation. And what I will end with is that in 1753... David Hume got up out of his bed <laughs> and said negros are inferior to whites. People were shocked when I said it. But I wasn't ma- making up anything new. He said it. You type it now on your phone, it's there. <laughs> what did David Hume say about black people? Negros were inferior to whites. That is the essence of our problem. Mm. Because that was taken up by Immanuel Kant and turned into the Negro race Is inferior to white And that Is a complete myth Because there is no evidence for that That Negroes are inferior to white They've tried Using IQ tests In the 60s I think The psychologists did that So the 60s was plagued with IQ tests In America And in Europe, to try to prove that Hume and Kant, because if they could do that, then we were in trouble. Because that would say, this is a fact, because that was used to enslave African people. You read some of the documents from that period. Yes, we can enslave them because they are inferior. They don't understand complexities. They don't have the capacity As, as white people. And what I've challenged that with is to say, "Give me the evidence." I said the irony is you won't give the people in Benin back their 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 their, their um masks um and bronzes because they're too sophisticated. <laughs> you were saying they're inferior, could they have made those hmm. and therefore these are the the ironies of the myth, yeah. and therefore." We now must look at the consequences of the so-called Enlightenment, where so-called the great minds of Hume and Kant and other philosophers, as they were called, have spread this around. The point is that the consequences of that is racism. That's what killed Floyd. That's what that little boy got shot in the head recently the point is that we've got to speak that truth and that truth has got to be acknowledged and it's happening because big companies have spoken to me, whether it's the Royal bank, whether it's Bailey Gifford or whether it's, um, Morgan Stanley or whatever. Um, a lot of companies have spoken to me and they're looking at their representation in their company. And, um, you know, and that is very important. I'm going to London next week to speak to black doctors who I don't know. They just contacted me by email and I'm going to speak. And I'm, I've been to Liverpool and I'm, um, I'm speaking at the University of Greenwich by Zoom. And I have to cancel a meeting because the kids in Hackney heard I was coming. God knows how they are to London. And they're saying, can I come to Hackney and speak to them? The point is the truth works. And people are now listening. And the work you are doing and what you will put out, people will read. And the point is that they can check it. So they can check what I've said. They can check Kant. They can check Hume. They can check the weatherburns. You put out the names, they can check them. And they will find exactly what I say are there. And that is the power of what I call you know, and when people say to me about statues, I say, the next statue down should be racism, until you take that down, leave all the others up. <laughs> when you've taken down the statue of racism, tell me, and we can discuss the others, <laughs> and you know so that's one of my 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 views. And the other one is, you know, um, we're one humanity. Nobody can prove otherwise. You know, skin color is different, but your heart is closer to mine than my family's. And your heart is closer to the white person on the other side of the road than his heart is to his family who are white. That's the importance of our similarity when we spend a lot of time looking at a pigment. And millions of people have died because of a pigment. That is the horror of this history, which must not continue. The horror of this history is people have died because of a pigment. When we can take each other's hearts. To me, that's where we've got to move on now from the past, and I, and I think we are. And Glasgow University has done something to help. Edinburgh Council has, and so have the museums. We've done pro, I've done projects and advisory work with them, and we're moving on. So, you know, we are one humanity, nothing less. What I've done for you, I think, is to try and link, which I've not done in, in other interviews, is to link the scientific difficulties with the historical differences and what it is it's the um it's the attitude even though you're at work yeah. and course okay, now i'm a free agent mm. is that the ob- people object to us making a, an important point about what they think is their their business yeah. and that is no it's no business of theirs it belongs to all of us and thus this idea that if you were putting out your podcast or whatever, and it's effective, somebody would say, but he's not an expert at podcasts. Mm-hmm. So despite the content is valuable, <laughs> they're saying, oh, no, he's, he's you, know, you don't have to listen to that because he's just an amateur. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know, really know what he's doing. And that's why what we do has got to be of such that it carries something new. And what I've tried to do today is the link so you could see it. Yeah. Because if I didn't do that, and if I just talked about the statues, it would be just part of the story about me. And a lot of people have not got both to show the difficulties. It's, it's not to do with you have somebody with the capacity, but nevertheless, it's, we've got people in our society working against their own society. They'd rather me not have done my research and not have done the history work, even though it's of value to the country. You, you see what I, I mean? And that kind of attitude and the, the phrase I use, which was used by the various other people now, is and I will use it on yours and I will say it, is... <clears throat> You know, I'm saying that it's a sort of statement where I say you cannot change the past, but you can change consequences of the past, Mm -hmm. such as racism, for the better, using education. And to me, that's the essence of it, Mm -hmm. that we can change the consequences. But education is important to effect that change, and thus... I just had a meeting with an MSP in the Scottish Parliament and we all came to the conclusion that this history must be taught in the curriculum and it must be taught truthfully and honestly without any balance because one of the balances which people are now using and this is the fight back, if you're going to put it that way, by the what I call the White um, a negative establishment is to say, but um, yes, okay, we were involved in this slavery and we were, you know, but Africans sold the slaves. So the Africans are responsible. So that is a view that has been put forward and at the highest level. And my response to that has been, I was talking to somebody last night and they were going into complications. I said, all slaveries are wrong. doesn't matter what you call them. However, you've got to define your slaveries, just like you have to define race. The slavery we're talking about was illegal. It had to be abolished because it was illegal. And when it was abolished, the slave owners got £20 million. It's about £20 today. And 47,000 people were involved in that compensation. 47,000. And Scotland was almost overrepresented in terms of its population size. And those are facts. And I then would say to them, Who in Africa was conducting this slavery on a legal, government-controlled basis? I'm not arguing, defending it. And if you are a superior country, how can you legalize something like that? (laughs) You know? The point is that the legality by a parliament of something like that is what the issue is about. Modern slavery, people will bring that up as well. Modern slavery is criminality. It's against the law. Our slavery wasn't, it was the law. And those are the fundamental differences. And at the end, I will say, as far as I know, they weren't African ships, at least, or coming up the Clyde. Selling slaves, as far as I know. There were no African ships in the Clyde or in the Thames or at Liverpool selling slaves. What I do know, there were hundreds of British ships over many hundreds of years picking up slaves in Africa. So if their ships weren't down there, there'd be no transport to anywhere. And therefore, that isn't an argument as such. I just want to point out the reality that nobody should be bought or sold, but the ships were down there, getting slaves, whether they were buying or, I don't know how they bought them, whether it's money or goods in exchange, but the ships were down there. They weren't african ships here yeah. but nevertheless all slavery is wrong yes, however slavery is a word used and therefore the slavery you are describing must be defined mm-hmm. so that we can know what was happening yeah. it should not be now used as an excuse to try and negate diminish nullify What happened by saying the Arabs were selling slaves and the Africans were selling slaves? Because that is not a valid um, response. And when I said to somebody last night, they said, well, you can say that we can't because we don't want to get into difficulties. (laughs) But if that isn't said, then, in fact, that will remain as a valid balance and you've got a professor at Oxford called Professor Bigger. That's his view. He's saying, he published in the Times two weeks ago, and I have responded on Twitter. This is mo- one of the most senior professors. He's the professor of um, moral f- theology, <laughs> something like that, of moral theology, or something like that. And he's saying that Britain only benefited. Now, I'm going to quote it, and it's absolutely correct. He said Britain gained occasional benefits from slavery. Occasional. It went on for about 300 years. (laughs) A professor at Oxford actually said the benefits were occasional. Again, I said to somebody last night, Why has anybody challenged that? I'm the only person to have said that is a disgrace. That is a disgrace. And then he goes on to say, well, it was an occasion, but the British Navy defended slavery. Or, no, they defended the abolition. That's what he was trying to say. The The British, by using the Navy after the ab- abolition of the slave trade, I'll make that clear. After the British abolished the slave trade, the British Navy tried to stop other people continuing the slave trade. And that's supposed to be worth the enslavement for hundreds of years. The British Navy stopped other people continuing the slave trade. And when you look at it very carefully, historically, the British had the Navy, but they didn't do a good job of stopping it because the Americans continued and the Brazilians continued and the Cubans continued long after British slave trade was abolished. Long after the British slave trade was abolished, even with the Navy, the Americans continued to by slaves, in fact they encouraged it to a certain degree, and the Brazilians were still enslaving people, taking them down to Brazil by the thousands and thousands, and the Cubans were doing it. So therefore, this argument is now the argument, and therefore that should be dealt with, that should be stated, that you cannot use this so-called balance. Africans did it, they were involved. They even brought in David Livingston, that he was involved in Africa, and he knew about slavery and didn't do much about it. So, therefore, he and the Africans were involved. Can you imagine? That's an argument. But we can't leave anything outstanding, because even if it's a sentence, one has got to say the, the excuse of Africans selling slaves... Is no excuse for this horror that went on for 300 years and was illegal within this country, a country that the individuals saw themselves as superior. As superior. So again, it, the, the, the war, what you're doing is important because the, the acknowledgement that this happened is there. It's, no, they can't deny it is now we're looking for the excuses to balance it, to say that it was done, but it was okay. You know, we we didn't get all that much from it, (laughs) and we abolished it, and we then policed it. Nothing of the sort, that's a myth. The fact is that this slavery was pushed by the parliament. It was legal. Nobody said a word in terms of petitions until they really started the abolition. And then the one of the most powerful statements against gradual abolition, two people, and these are British, one was an abolitionist called Clarkson. And what Clarkson said, that Dundas was the main instrument against the abolition of the slave trade. He was the main instrument against Wilberforce, And that's written, Clarkson said that. And he's one of the most important abolitionists of the whole lot. And that's written over there, where Clarkson said that. The other point is Fox, an MP at the time, and what Fox said about gradual abolition, it was like, Gradual murder. Mm. There can be no such thing. And he said it. It's like carrying that out. He he had an, uh, I can't quote him exactly, but that was what he was getting at. Mm. Therefore, it was no excuse to do that. And finally, on this aspect, I will read you what the Prime Minister at the time said about Gradual. That's Dundas' prime minister. That's Pitt. You know, the younger Pitt, who was the character, uh, uh, who was running the world because he was prime minister of Britain. Dundas worked for him. Dundas was minister of uh, the war and home secretary, etc. His boss was Pitt. And what did Pitt say about Gradual? by waiting for some contingency or by refusing to proceed till a thousand favourable circumstances unite together. And then he goes on to say, year after year escapes and the most enormous evils go unredressed. That's the Prime Minister at the time saying Gradual meant waiting for some contingency. That means you're waiting for something that you know nothing about. <laughs> How long is that? And the other one is by refusing to proceed till a thousand favorable circumstances unite. When is ever a thousand favorable circumstances in your life is ever going toward anybody's life? is ever going to come together. What he's saying, it meant never. Gradual was not, not gonna happen until they wanted it to happen. Gradual meant never for the slaves. They had to depend on the powers that be when a thousand, when they regard a thousand circumstances have united, and therefore his iniquity was known at the time. The prime minister says it. So what the historians are trying to defend with excuses, it was the French Revolution, that's why he did it.' That's what it was. You needed slaves because they were dying young and early in their lives. And they can't be bred fast enough. And therefore you need to delay until you put that strategy in place. That's what the gradual was about. So we've got the Prime Minister telling us we don't need anybody else. And this is the kind of work I've had to do. And it's my son who sent me that. This, what I've just read, is in that book, which is tattered. (laughs) This is one volume of four volumes. And this is a rarity. I don't know if there's another. My son bought it and sent it to me. These four volumes. And these are the speeches of Prime Minister Pitt during his lifetime. He's regarded as one of the most significant prime ministers ever because he was there at the French Revolution. He was there at the height of colonial power. And and, and therefore, these are his speeches. And what I've just read there came from this book. And you can see how tatty it is, see how much I've read it. (laughs) The other three volumes I've not touched. (laughs) But that is where my... um, And and I say evidence comes from that I would not, in fact, say something unless, in fact, I can go back and check it. And there are all those books. There's even one there by William Hague, the past prime minister, because he's written a book on Pitt, William Pitt. And he actually quotes that phrase I've just read. William Hague, ex-British, I think he was prime minister. I can't remember. He was in the conservative party, mm-hmm. very senior. And he has written a book on Pitt and he quotes that. Um, a, a phrase I've just read. So the point is that, you know, uh, uh, um, William Hague knows it and it's in his book, but it's never ever quoted by anybody else. Yes, sir. You know, and it to me, Again, this is how we how do we deal with that. So I'll, I'll check William a. I don't think right. it, it may have been Prime Minister, may have been not, but he was very senior in the Conservative government. But that's his book over there. And it's very important because he deals with, even when Dundas was going to be impeached. Now, this is the irony. Here's a man who... who controlled the world in a way. You know, Britain owned a fifth of the world. It was painted in red when I was a wee boy at school, so we knew it. British Empire, all red, a fifth of the world. And, um, you know, you were in a situation where this man was controlling that. And then, although I was called a brewer to, to denigrate what I'm saying, Oh, he's just a brewer. Don't listen to him. Which to me, it's insulting to brewers. Like, the, some of my students are so wealthy as brewers. <laughs> you know, like, you, I don't know if you know, they, you've heard of Brew Dog, the beer? Yes. Brew dogs, they're very successful. They're all over the world now. They're based in Aberdeen. That's their headquarters. Mm. And there are two owners. Well, one of the owners is my student. And Stuart Brewing in Edinburgh, he's my student. So my students have done very well, and they're all over the world, all over the world, um, uh, my students. The point is that there is a man, somebody's then trying to denigrate what I'm saying to negate it by saying he's just a brewer, just ignore him. The interesting thing, the irony of that is, Henry Dundas was impeached in 1806. Because Samuel Whitbread, who was a brewer, (laughs) found out that he had taken Navy's money. So here's a man in charge of the Navy. That's Trafalgar, Nelson, Rodney. You know, there's a street in Edinburgh called Rodney Street. I'm told there's one in Glasgow as well. Rodney Street. Those streets are significant. Why? because in 1782 the French decided they were going to take Jamaica from Britain because Jamaica was providing over 50% of the income from the slavery empire. Jamaica was providing more money than America. So the French thought if they could take Jamaica from Britain, they would change the economics at the time. So I would be today speaking French you probably wouldn't be here (laughs) because you'd be part of France (laughs) Um, and the French decided they were going to take Jamaica and the British sent down two men to protect Jamaica Rodney and Hood so that's why you have Rodney Street because they went down in 1782 and defeated the French the French lost and wounded 3,000 men in three days. And that battle is mentioned by Robert Burns. In 1793, 11 years later, Burns actually said, here's a toast to the boys we lost in the Battle of the Glorious Twelve. May their fame last until the world goes round. The point is that we've never got that history of Rodney Street, and we don't know. The irony is Rodney Street runs into the Naval Club. Both in Edinburgh, when I went to Glasgow to give a talk, somebody said to me in the audience, only a few months ago, we also have a Rodney Street in Glasgow and it runs into the Naval Club. So we have our history around us and we don't know the relationship between Rodney, Jamaica, British economics, African slavery and the Naval Club and it's in a street next to where we live. Nobody's told us. Nobody's told anybody about that history. So therefore, in terms of Dundas, the point is, the irony about me again, he was impeached by a brewer, Samuel Whitbread. (laughs) And you know who the Whitbreads are? They used to be brewers in Bedford in England, and they made Heineken. But they've been a very powerful family. There's a Samuel Whitbread Academy who contacted us in Scotland and we had a meeting. And what I'm telling them about Samuel Whitbread, they didn't know. And they've got a school called the Whitbread Academy. And you know what the Whitbread owns today? Same family Premier Inn and Beefeater. Same family. I said this last night and people were, <laughs> because they couldn't link the history with today. Yeah, I said the, the family still, still there. They still own that. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> link to the women, yeah. So again, you know, the, this history, if, 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 if when people know it, mm-hmm. it makes things so much clearer. And again, finally, we're Burns again, people, because I'm now the Burns ambassador. <laughs> this is the irony. I'm the Burns. I've got to respond to the Burns Club in Stonehaven. They want me to come and give a talk uh, next year. And the point is that you look at your Burns. He was going to go to Jamaica in 1786 to be, a, as he called it himself, a slave driver, but he didn't go. But if you look at his work carefully... He mentions it. So he talks about the Rodney victory. Here's a toast to the boys we lost. He's talking about the British sailors who died. He also, in his poem, owed sacred to Mrs. Oswald of Ochenkru. That's the Oswald family, who are still about today. You know, they've got a stained glass window in the cathedral. There's a stained glass window to, I think, Buchanan, the slave the slave person, slave agent. There's a stained glass window in the cathedral to it. And therefore, Burns, if you look at your Burns carefully, which a lot of people didn't realize, in his poem, "Old Sacred to the Memory of Mrs. Oswald of Orkincrope, probably the most two powerful lines of avarice ever written are there. And what are they? Or we can say there are three. In that poem, when I checked, Burns says, hands, he's talking about now slavers, hands never stretched to save, never stretched to save. Hands that took, but never gave. Hands that took, but never gave. That's in that poem. Describing Mrs. Oswald, whose husband was the notorious slave owner who owned Barnes Island of Sierra Leone, from which he sold slaves. He's recorded in that poem in terms of the money. And that Grove house, where they lived, is still there. Anybody can go and visit it. And the inside is luxurious. You can see what I think. I've got a picture of the. I took some photographs, and on the computers, you know, they come up all together. So I've got a, a, a picture, I'll show it to you, of inside of that house when I went on a visit on my own. I just was curious. I drove there, <laughs> and they wouldn't let me in. And I said, I own it. <laughs> I don't think they understood the irony. <laughs> I said, my ancestors bought all this <laughs> stuff. Are you telling me I can't go in? Mm. <laughs> so this is the sort of difficulties I create. No wonder <laughs> they're they're going to sue me. <laughs> but anyway, Dundas's impeachment. It was Samuel Whitbread who effected his impeachment in 1806, ended his career. He never held another senior post. Although people say, oh well, but the House of Lords let him off. He was impeached. And that impeachment in 1806 finished his political career. And the slave trade was abolished in 1807. 1806, he was impeached. Slave trade abolished in 1807. Historians don't regard that. They say it's just chance. He was impeached. He put that order of the delay in 1792. It went on until 1807. He was impeached in 1806 for taking Navy's money when he was treasurer of the Navy. Treasurer. And thus had ended his career. So as my mother says, you know, there is a higher power dealing with these things. <laughs> <That'd be excellent. laughs> that, the irony of that. Is wasn't brought about by any great political act or military mm. act. He was discovered taking the Navy's money, and that so. ended his career. And that brought about the abolition of the slave trade the following year.